Hey, this is Eugene Rapkin, and you're listening to the Style Zeitgeist Podcast. Hi, everyone. This is Eugene. I'm here with Jeffrey Bismol, an American designer who's been living and working in Italy for a long time now. Uh, one of my favorites, a true artisan and obsessive about quality and detail and construction and making things by hand and increasingly more rare and more important person in our plastic world. And the more plastic our world gets, the more appreciation I have for Jeffrey and his work. So we're here to talk about Jeffrey's journey, his philosophy, and uh, his methods of work. So welcome, Jeffrey. Thank you so much, Eugene. It's a real pleasure and it's an honor to be here. And uh, thank you for everything you've done with uh, Style Zeitgeist over the years. Uh, I know you guys have been working hard over the past year, keeping everything going, including the forum. And we really appreciate uh, all that you've done. Yeah. Thank you, Jeffrey. So I want to start off, at, you know, every time I do an episode, I imagine the audience knows nothing about you. So I'm going to pretend you know, this, the same thing. So That's probably a very good assumption. A, That's probably yeah, spot on. <laughs> yeah, because you never know, you know, who comes in and listens. And we've had some wonderful surprises with the podcast that sort of has taken on a life of its own as a medium. And it's been really wonderful. So you walk, you know, walk us through your journey from a guy in Boston ending up in New York, Paris, and finally Italy, going through the whole fashion hoopla and brouhaha and hype, and then finally saying, the hell with all that. I'm going to make the best clothes I can make in the best place I can make it and do my own thing and be truly, truly one of the few independent designers I think, you know, my my story is a little bit weird. I, I don't come from a family that, you know, had anything to do with, with fashion or clothing. I came from a family of uh, academics and, and physicians. But when I was young, I, I did have the passion for this kind of thing, for, for clothes. I always loved clothes. And so I began a career a long time ago. Uh, I'm 62 now, and I started when I was about 16. And I started selling clothes in, in a Gap store in, in Chestnut Hill. Um, and I was lucky. I went to design school. I won some prizes. And then I began to get introduced to, to the industry. I grew up in Boston. And, you know, Boston didn't have an industry. New York is where the industry is, where, where you guys are. Um, and the more I looked at the industry in New York, uh, Honestly, the less I liked it. And so back in those days, and we're talking the early 80s, uh, I decided I was going to try to make clothes by myself. And I was going to try to make the kind of clothes that I really liked, which at the time weren't being made in the United States. They weren't being designed in the United States. They were being designed in Europe. So I was very inspired by early Italian, late 70s designers like uh, Armani and Versace at the time. 
And I went through this long process where I basically self-taught. I took clothes apart that I bought in Sharavari. I tried to put them back together again. I had one Armani suit that I took apart. It took me almost 10 years before I could actually put it back together again. <laughs> um, but I think it was an approach that was different than typical design school approach, uh, was very, very practical. And I began to, I think, get a formation for design that over many decades I've found is becoming more and more unique. Uh, we look at things in a different way. Um, by the mid-90s in Boston, uh, we had made our name as a bespoke tailor. Uh, and then in 1993, I, I had this idea. I was inspired uh, by, uh, really I was inspired first by the Japanese and then by the Belgians. Because these were people that were suddenly, in, 19, in the early 80s, you had the Kam Yoji uh, revolution. And then by the mid-1986, you had the Antwerp Six. And Frank, I just remember at one point looking out the window of my, uh, my tailor's atelier on Newbury Street, which was the flashy street in Boston, the sort of Rodeo Drive. And my neighbor across the street, we were on the second floor rent was lower. He was on the first floor. It's a big retailer called Riccardi. And they're still around. They're oh, yeah. pretty much sportswear now. But um, yeah. they were they were very successful and they made a lot of money with the retail in Boston selling to uh, wealthy international students. And I remember he busted open a window one morning and it was Antwerp. It was Belgian designers at a time when, you know, uh, nobody ever heard of them. And I remember looking out that window and excuse my language. I just said, shit, they can do it from Antwerp. We can do it from Boston. <laughs> I'm sorry. And, you know, yeah. that's not to that's not to um, under under evaluate the people that were doing that work from Antwerp. And I have, you know, I have opinions on all of our colleagues in the business. Um, there's no question I have enormous esteem for the first generation of Antwerp people. Those guys deserve everything they have. And But the point was, you could go to Paris, and if you were doing really good work, you didn't need a lot of money, which was the opposite of what New York was about. New York, yeah. any New York designer, any, any young designer trying to make it in New York, and I tried, believe me, I was down there. Mm-hmm for over a decade and a half. And it was always like, well, how much advertising do you have? How much money do you have behind you? You know, where are you doing your production? It was always questions uh, when I was doing interviews for people in New York of, of how much money you had, how much commercial, you know, potential you could do. And that's really not where my head was at. And yeah. When I went to Paris in 1992, I started talking to people because I started asking around. I wasn't thinking maybe we're going to come over here, sort of like this Austrian guy just did, Helmut Lang, and these Belgians mm -hmm. did. And the people that I was talking with was a completely different question set. It was, uh, can we see your work? Can you show us your designs? Amazing. 
Amazing question for a fashion designer. It was. Can we see your work? It was, Eugene. I got to <laughs> say, and I don't know if people understand it today, but back in 1992, for a young guy in America who was trying to be a, a Ray Kawakubo or a Helmut Lang, okay, which was, it was, that was impossible. Are you kidding me? Who do you think you are? To go into that city and then the question wasn't how famous you were, how much money you had. It was like, can we see your ideas? That yeah. was mind blowing. And within three days in Paris, I said, we got to come here. And that was before Rick. That was before Tom Ford. That was before Jeremy Scott. That was before everybody. I was the first to do Paris. And the reason I did Paris was because that was the place you could feel it. That was the place mm -hmm. where you went if you had some ideas to show and nothing else. And so Paris yeah. played a huge role in my career at that time. And I think as much as Paris has been corporatized and I beef about it all the time these days, I think it still provides that opportunity. And it's such a crucial point in the world where there's a place where if you're nothing else, but you've got a strong idea and there's a place to go to show it and a chance to make it, that's really, really important. So yeah. I brought over my first collection to Paris in a suitcase the next year. And I, you know, I couldn't even get into a trade show. I couldn't do a showroom. So I'm going around the stores and knocking on the doors. I knocked on Mary Louise's door. I knocked on Armand Hadidi Claire's door. I knocked on a whole bunch of other doors and I got nowhere. <laughs> mm -hmm. Because I went during market week, everybody was busy. They yeah. were all out working showrooms. Okay. And I slowly regrouped and I saved up my money that I was making in my tailoring shop in Boston. And I went back. I got into a small trade show, which at the time was pretty visionary. And I showed my first real collection in the fall of 1993. And my neighbor was another guy coming from another country. We were both first timers in Paris trying to learn the ropes. We knew it was a tough game. We knew we were going to have to be here forever before we ever became anybody or anything. And we both changed our work dramatically over the years, but we both mm -hmm. had our successes. And the, and the guy next door to me was, was a young Italian guy named Altieri, Maurizio. Wow. And, and so, you know, we go From back. Carpezium. Yeah. Yeah. He was, he was even doing carpe diem at the time, but at the carpe diem that he was doing in his booth, you wouldn't recognize it. It was nothing like the mm -hmm. carpe diem that he got famous for and successful with. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, that's where I was. I was part of that generation. And, you know, we slowly climbed the ladder in Paris. And then we got to the point where we could do a show. And then we, we hit, we had a, we had a concept that worked that, um, we always try to give credit where we can. And that was, you know, you've got a family of designers going through and some of them relate a lot to styles, zeitgeist audience and, and ethos. Okay. We start with Cal Kubo and Yoji, but particularly Cal Kubo, I would say. And yeah. what, for me, what was important with Cal Kubo is she, she did decon. 
She was the first to, to take the things apart and start to show things that weren't finished, that were inside out, that were fucked up. And she did that very mm -hmm. early in her early Paris collections. It was some of it was an ode to Hiroshima. And that's that's a part of CDG's work that I think doesn't get talked about very much. But there was yeah. a moment where both she and Yoji were tremendously influenced by the Holocaust that we did when we bombed Hiroshima and Nagasaki. That was that was a lot of the aesthetic influence and spiritual influence of those first early 80s collections of those two, which was what really, I think, viscerally shocked the international group, the press and the buyers. It was powerful artistic stuff. Yeah. Now, she inspired another group, particularly the Belgians. And what the Belgians did was particularly, I would say, I think Margiela first and foremost. Margiela took Decon, which was a part of Ray's collection in the early 80s. It wasn't the entire thing. It was a part of it. You know, and collections mm -hmm. have different components. And oftentimes, designers will use certain parts of collections to test out new ideas. But it won't be the entire story. Um, yeah. We do it all the time. And so Martin saw the Decon. And Martin ran with the decon and turned it into his entire concept. So in 1986, when he came out with his first collections, it was the first real total deconstructed collection in the game. That had a huge impact. And within Martin's collection, we saw him do something also in a, in a subcategory, which we thought was very important. And that was he took an old used vintage jacket he took the sleeves off, he put some automatic snaps on them so that you could put it back on or take it off. And he put mm -hmm. that piece in one of his first collections and showed it in Paris. And that was, that was the first recycle design. Mm -hmm. And when we started showing in the 90s, uh, we went through some trials. And our first collection completely bombed. The second one was barely, it wrote one order. The third collection, we began to, I don't know, we began to find the courage to, to do things that were different, not necessarily because we were brave, but also because we had to, because there was no reason to buy Jeffrey B. Small at that point, unless Jeffrey mm -hmm. B. Small showed something that was radically different. And also when you're a young designer, particularly if you don't have the access to uh, let's say powerful media people who are backing you or powerful industry or financial people who are backing you, then you have to have something that stores will buy from you. So you have to have a bit of a commercial side as well as being creative. It's almost a catch 22. It's almost impossible. Yeah. Um, but we found it, we found it by taking Martin's initial idea, and then we turned it into a full concept. And so we became recycle designers. And along with another, an African guy who did it one season before me, but I don't think he had the legs. I don't think he had the training mm -hmm. and I don't think he had the overall, I don't know, he didn't have the industry skill or the um, technical skill to run a long way with it. And the reason was he only had a couple of techniques with recycle and mm -hmm. 
he had a huge bonus called Zuli Bet. He became one of the most famous designers for about two or three seasons in the game. Yeah. But he wasn't able to continue. And I was coming from a different background. I had been working out in the wilderness in Boston for almost 15 years. I was a competent, bespoke tailor. So I knew how to build a real, you know, bespoke jacket with canvas fronts and pad stitching. And, you know, mm -hmm. the, the level of technical knowledge that I had was pretty extensive. And that could be applied to recycle, I felt, in 10 years. And so that's what we did. And then we began to climb from Boston. And then by the mid 90s, there were things that happened and uh, the industry changed and uh, the corporate, um, I think the corporate movement really began to take shape. That was when with the relaunches of Gucci and Prada and, uh, and then there became strong pressure on the part of a lot of us in our generation who had, we had sort of made it as independents. Um, and I'm talking about now second generation Belgians where by this time you had Raph and Veronique and, and uh, Van der Voorst and uh, all that crowd in there. And there was a booming uh, independent part of the industry. Yeah, I feel like that was such a golden age. It was, it was a very special time, Eugene. There's no doubt about it. And I will be the first to say that one of the things I had in my career, I was lucky. I was lucky because th during that period was when I was showing and we were able to get in the door. By the end of the 90s, that door got shut. And it still really hasn't reopened. And it got shut because the no. big corporate interests, the fashion really became a big business at that point. And it hasn't turned back since. Uh, it's only gotten even bigger. Um, and it became corporate. It became run by corporate from the media to the production and distribution system. And it changed things dramatically. Uh, and at that point, a lot of us, had to, we had to give up our independence and we had to sign deals and we had to start producing with Italian production. And that included mm -hmm. Ralph, Martin, uh, Anne, yeah. was, Anne was doing deals with Italians. Everybody, we all had to. Helmut Lang was producing with Gibo in Italy and Zamasport. We were, yeah. it, became, it became like a Hollywood film system where you know, you make your indie film over there in uh, Stockholm, and uh, <laughs> then when you really want to get come to Hollywood, <laughs> then when you really got to get serious, you got to come to Hollywood, and you got to make a Hollywood movie. And if you couldn't deal with a Hollywood, and you had to make your concessions, you, you mm -hmm. couldn't do the same movie you were doing in 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 Oslo or Stockholm. You had to make yeah. a Hollywood movie, and that's a different game. That's a different animal. That means you've got to do things to get that audience to a certain size, to appease all these different things mm -hmm. commercially. And so your, your work also gets changed. Your design gets yeah. changed. Um, and so I signed my, I signed a licensing deal in the end of 1999, 2000. I closed down uh, an independent company in Boston. I moved everything, uh, my family, I had two kids or twins that were two years old. We moved to Italy. Uh, we started basically from scratch. Um, 
I didn't have a great experience with the licensing deal. Uh, not all licensing deals go well. It's like record companies and recording artists. Um, yeah. And I think, you know, we can look at some of my colleagues who've gone through, you know, they don't, it's the first or second or third deal where they really begin to make it. D squared is one example where they had a first mm -hmm. licensee, which is a company that had negotiated. They were also trying to sign me. Um, they worked 10 years with this licensee and basically unheard of. And eventually they went with, you know, staff, which at the time was being taken over by Renzo sure. Rosso. And they became a half a billion euro a year thing for better or for worse. But um, it was a second licensee that really made them the, the big commercial success. Well, I saw enough with my experience with the first licensee that I wasn't, I didn't like what I saw. And I, I was also coming into Italy at a critical time, which I think, uh, I had a unique perspective to see. It was another one of these windows. And what was happening in Italy was Italy was getting at the clothes making and the fabric making level. It was also getting very corporatized, um, very, mm -hmm. very influenced by uh, classic American industrial approaches, globalization. And over the next 10 years while I was in Italy, it completely changed. Uh, that was, for example, that fellow that uh, I told you to call when you when you called me a few months back. Uh, he wrote a great book on a lot of what's going on at that level. Yeah, th thank you for that, Jeffrey. I mean, he was a gold mine. You know, he's he's an important being... guy. I mean, he, he's yeah. an important guy because, like me, he's and I hate to say it, I'm an outsider who's after forty years, I'm I'm very much an insider. But he was, he's an insider in the fact that he was working for these companies and eventually, you know, he's a whistleblower in, in many ways. Um, yeah. for, for those of you who, who are not following at this point, uh, I was doing research for an article I wrote for Heist Nobiety. It's called the murky business of designer t-shirts. Uh, you got check it out, guys. It's, uh, and I spoke with this whistleblower. His name escape, escapes me now. And it's just some mind-blowing stuff he told me about the way the things are uh, produced, quote-unquote, in Italy. Um, but we'll get to that, Jeffrey. We, we'll get uh, to that. His name is Giuseppe, I think. Uh, Giuseppe, Giuseppe Iorio. I never met exactly. him, but I saw him on TV doing some interviews, and then I read his book, and uh, I think yeah. that's it's, Amazing. it's an, it's yeah. an important work. Um, yeah, I tried to get that book uh, translated, you know, trying to find an English uh, language publisher, but I haven't, I've gotten nowhere so far. But I, I'm God, gonna keep trying. I, I think that would be a that would be a smart deal because I think uh, there's the readership potential is much larger if it's in an English version than just an Italian version. Um, I think so too. Well, what he but wrote anyway, about, uh, sorry, what, what he wrote about, I was living, I was in the middle of it. And, you know, what was happening here was a disaster. And, uh, I began to feel like, uh, with my background, um, there was still a chance to do something 
in the industry and because of the positioning geographically where I am, which is I'm right in the middle of this thing. I'm in the middle of the Veneto. The Veneto is the, it's the fashion powerhouse of the, of the world luxury market. Everything's made here. Everything. Mm -hmm. All the French luxury houses, all that carrying LV stuff, it's all being run through here now. And what I saw going on around me, of which I had been a victim of in a big way, because my licensing experience was, was very bad for me. I lost a lot. And I was put in pretty, pretty hairy situation. Um, I dug out and I decided that there's a place for a very focused company that's going to focus on the absolute top end of the, both the design and the manufacturing sector here. We're going we're gonna to lead the business in the research. We're going to be the Ferrari of the industry. And I felt like I could do it. I had the background, I had the formation, nobody else is very, very few CEOs or chief designers who can actually make a bespoke suit. And that's critical if you're going to build a great research company. You've got to have an engineer, if you will, who's a CEO or a chief designer. And then I had, by that time, I was 30 years, 20 years in the Paris circuit. So we had, you know, we had a we had a market. We had people that knew us in different countries and we had a distribution and we had a certain reputation. Uh, we were, you know, undercover without having the name undercover. But, you know, anybody <laughs> yeah. in the game, anybody in the game who's really who really watches design, they know exactly what we're up to all the time because yeah. we do it first and they can pick off of it. And because we don't have a tremendous amount of press power, they can pick up the credit for it and get a much bigger market. We've accepted that reality. And so that's okay, because by the time we would even be able to commercially exploit any of our ideas, we want to be on to the next one. And we're focusing yeah. on that because it's a business in itself and it's a very difficult business um, if we stay in that niche, we avoid a lot of competition because it's a very expensive and difficult business to operate unless you really focus and concentrate on it. So the focus, mm -hmm. concentration and discipline required to run a research collection company is where I want to stay. And we can grow through price. We'll get more expensive. We'll keep margin that way. It's really, really the Ferrari model. And that's what I've been working on for the past 15, 20 years. And slowly, steadily, um, it's been building. And we find ourselves more and more uh, in a very, very unique position in, in fashion and in clothing. Um, and we got to the point where we're so many years in the business, we have enough power, if you will, so that we can actually operate without the mainstream media or mainstream distribution channels. Um, we run the business, I think, pretty well, you know, with, without bragging too much. I mean, we don't lose money. 
Uh, we make very, very small quantities. We make a lot of different things. We have the most, some of the most complex uh, hand-making uh, clothing operations on the planet. Uh, I just watch all these haute couture operations complaining how much they're losing money. They can't close. They got to they got to sell 15, 20 million euro a month of perfume in order to support their haute couture operation. Uh, I see Savile Row guys complaining that they can't make any money anymore. And you know what? I'm looking at them and I just don't get it. Why? Why? If you make great handmade clothing and you focus on that and you know what you're doing, it's like great chefs. You can be profitable. You can operate. Mm -hmm. So what's the issue? The issue is nobody knows how to do it anymore. And that's what's yeah. really that's what our story is. It's 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 sort of this. What is fashion? What are what are we doing? What is what is a designer? What is even a clothes clothes manufacturer anymore? What are we doing? And and I think we, we go back. Let's go back to the 19th century, and let's look at let's look at Marx and Hegel and 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 and, and talk about idealism versus materialism. Right now, yeah. my view is I think we've got a world in fashion. They're all into idealism. They're all theory, they're all concept, they're all this, you know, and then, and the more you spin it, the better you get at spinning the idealism, the more facili it facilitates you can sell a $12 million t-shirt because it comes down to being able to argue your idealism, your concept, and tricking people into thinking the t-shirt is the concept. Okay. Mm -hmm. I respect that. That's great. But I think there's another way to look at this whole thing. There's another way to look at the art. That is what Marx would call materialism. Let's look at what it is. Let's look at the clothes. Let's look at the actual process. Let's look at the materials. Let, let's look at that. And maybe that as itself is an art. Let's think about the actual and use of this art. Are we really honestly making garments to hang on a wall in some collector's house? And that's how we're going to become known after we die? Or are we actually trying to make, like a serious chef in a restaurant, something that you got to put in your mouth and taste and swallow? Is that the experience we're working on? And my view is that not enough people are focusing on that practical, real experience of the clothing. So that's why a lot of times, a lot of folks don't get what we're doing. Ah, oh, he's doing conservative stuff, oh, it's a handmade, high yeah. quality. They don't view it as, as an art form, whereas I do. Excuse mm -hmm. me, you look at Da Vinci, Da Vinci, was 99% technique. <laughs> yeah. he, was the he was the first to use the oil that was coming from the north. He used oil instead of, instead of water. It allowed him to make a completely different level of painting in Renaissance Italy. He was technically driven. So the question mm -hmm. right now is as we look at fashion and we talk about all these great things going on, I think there's an argument between Da Vinci 
And if we look, talk about art, Jeff Koons. <laughs> it's, a, it's a perfect example, Jeffrey. I, I think that's what we're dealing with right now. And one of the things that and, and I thank you and Patrick and all the guys, you know, that are you're part of your 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 group there is you're one of the few media that's pointed light towards that issue. And it's an issue because it is. Uh, yeah. You know, I mean, the reasoning is is I understand it. I mean, my training is not just tailoring and design. I, I also, you know, I also went to MBA in, in, at, at BU. I, I'm trained to run a corporation. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's a fact. If you have a choice as a corporate manager or as a corporate stockholder, perhaps, if you've got a choice between manufacturing a t-shirt or manufacturing one of our handmade jackets. There's no question what you want to try to do versus one or the other. If you can get away with the t-shirt, find any possible way to sell it at a certain margin. That's the way to go, baby. Because that other yeah. one is, that other one's a nightmare. <laughs> of course. Well, <laughs> and that's where we are at, at fashion. There are two points I want to make. First of all, where we are is that, Fashion is now a mass phenomenon, just like the rest of culture is that all of culture is a mass phenomenon. Agreed. So the question these uh, corporate fashion houses are faced with is exactly what we said. Okay, uh, are we going to make more money selling 100,000 t-shirts or 500 handmade suits? Well, the answer is obvious. And like what you said, we're going to dress it up with marketing gimmicks. We're going to put the logo on it. We're going to put it on all the right celebrities. And the lemmings are going to come for it because and that's how it works, because it's easy to understand. It's cheaper, even though it's still fucking expensive. I mean, I don't know who in their right mind pays for $500 for its t-shirts for a t-shirt, you know, whatever. But that's where we're at. It's a mass pursuit. And what's that's the game that corporate fashion is playing now. We're going to make, you know, music for the masses. Yeah. And with art, it's the same thing. It's exactly what you said. That, and, uh, and what happens here, of course, and it's a whole other conversation we're about to have with you is what you alluded to already, the loss of skill, because you don't need people anymore to make tailoring. You don't need tailors anymore. You don't That's need right. seamstress anymore. You know, That's you right. got magic slave elves doing this in faraway places that no one knows about. And the parallel with art, which you alluded to, is exactly the same. And I think Parallels with art between art and fashion are very important because from what I see, like fashion follows the art calendar, but with like about a 20 year delay here. You know? mm. And when you we started having this entire genera generations of fashion students who they don't want to practice figurative art. They, they, they don't want to learn how to draw or paint. They're like, I'm going to go straight to abstract art. Right. And 
I don't know where those professors are who's supposed to tell these kids. No, Picasso knew how to paint. He yeah. could paint Kandinsky, you know, Schillet, whatever. They could paint you a perfectly wonderful representational yeah. painting in a classical right. style. This is just not where they wanted to go as a culture. You know, that culture to them was that, but they were masters of their craft. Yeah, that's you know, right. They could, they, they, there was nothing to hide behind. Um, and now there is. And I would, a lot of that is hiding behind, you know, fancy wording or uh, ideas that are actually, you know, a lot of it is bullshit. Yeah, no, there's a, I mean, I was, I was thinking, as I was getting ready for the interview that <laughs> I was thinking like how much of this industry right now is bullshit. Um, I'm glad that you could say it cause I'm not sure if we can say it on the podcast, but oh yeah, um, yeah that's yeah, far away. <laughs> that's right. And you know, there's forces that are behind that. I mean, this isn't by accident and I'm going to go again. It's, I'm going to go back to my business training. I, I was coming out of the, the Milton Friedman school, of disciples, 1981 to 84. This was when the free market thing was just coming out of University of Chicago, but all the top uh, B schools were also training. I mean, we were being ingrained into this thinking. And I can't tell you how many times in a classroom we were told to eliminate as much as possible the human being. The worst thing you yeah. can do as a manager is to hire more people. You must get rid of them. If you have a machine that you can buy to get rid of the employee, you buy it. If you have a poor country that you can ship out the job to instead of you know, an American in this case or an Italian, okay, and you can have that person working for a buck an hour instead of 15, you do it. And you do this systematically throughout every corner of the corporation to reduce any kind of human skill because that puts you more at risk. And it also requires enormous investment, right? And so we were coached, ingrained. That's how we run the corporations. And so these guys that I went to school with, and it's important to note that a lot of the guys I went to school with are running major Italian luxury corporations today. I'm not going to name any names, but some of the big names you're reading about in the headlines right now, the last couple of days, they went to school with me in Boston. All right. And they got that same disciple talking. So what we've got is we don't have like a, a sudden thing. This is a, I went to school in the eighties, Eugene. That's, that's three, four decades ago. This is something yeah. that's been going and going and going, and it's been permeated through all of the corporate world. And it's now at a point where it's worked. Everybody's de-skilled. There are no yeah, jobs. Exactly. Nobody knows exactly. how to do fucking anything. Okay. No. <laughs> Excuse me. Right. Language. Every, every, every time I have to take a pair of shoes to be fixed, it's always a 50 year old immigrant. Yeah. Anywhere I go. Yeah. It's a, it's a 50 year old immigrant, either from Eastern Europe 
are from the Middle East. You know, there is, and they're so happy to see you because you're actually bringing something to fix as opposed to buying your 100th pair of sneakers only to throw it out, right? Because those sneakers are made to be thrown out. They're not made to, to be... Right. And of know. course, of course, that raises a whole other issue with this whole system. What we've created is we've created this incredibly unsustainable system that's pumping out stuff that's de-skilled. I mean, it, I, I've people can read my blog, my blurbs on the forum if they want about the problems this has led to and created. Um, and we're nowhere near resolving it. But I think no, also it's, it's very important to note, and I even the, the, the inspiration for what I'm doing now, which is another part of the interview or the discussion or whatever, but let's go back to Picasso and Mondrian. The fact is, and this I think is very important, is that they're, their change in their artwork, what they did was they were the first. They were unique. Yeah. Nobody had done that before. It was radical. Yeah. Okay. That's not the issue that we see today. They're doing the same old thing. They're just respinning it. It's not mm -hmm. a big new idea. And I think, you know, for, for what it's worth, and, you know, I, I may never... It may be the second or third generation of my company that really hits the big time. But I think you, you only make a real big artistic turnaround. If you go back to between idealism and materialism, I think if there's an issue where the materialism hasn't been addressed, you look at the materialistic aspect of the art and you do something that really changes the fundamental core. That's the big one. That's the big idea. That's the one that's really going to have its impact and change things. Um, and I don't think that's what people in fashion are addressing right now. And so I, it, it, it may, it may never change. It may continue on this route. I mean, God knows, you know, look, mass media, I don't want to disrespect anybody in the mass media. These are smart people. They, they have a lot of power. They know what they're doing. Um, they work hand in hand with large corporations that have big interests. Those are smart people. They know what they're doing. I mean, uh, these are not dumb people. Uh, and, yeah. But what I think in regards to what I've been doing and with our company is it's not, it's not hopeless. Uh, because what we found is, geez, you know, if you are the only guy that can fix shoes in Manhattan, if, if you are the only guy in the Veneto that can make handmade clothing anymore, you're not going to starve. Believe me. Yeah. For sure. Uh, I want to just, again, for the benefit of the audience that may be new to the podcast, in your own words, Jeffrey, describe what it is that you do now. What are the processes and what does it look like? You know, your style, like, there's a lot of tailoring. There's a lot of handmade tailoring. It's a lot of handmade details, but it's also very kind of unstructured and flowing. And, you know, there is an element of historicism in it, which I love, but it's not costume. And so, but, you know, t t tell the audience in your words, you know, like what's in your mind? Like, what is it that you're putting out? Well, the first thing is, 
designing and making clothes for people is a, is a privilege. And the first thing I'm always thinking about is survival. How do I keep earning the right to be able to do this for a living and to have 20, 30, eventually 40, 50, 100 people also doing it for a living? Now, the realities of the world today, some of the stuff that we just discussed, are that you cannot have human beings really working in industrialized countries building things for other human beings without a price that can support the livelihoods of these people. And that's a real, a real job, a real livelihood. They need to be able to pay a mortgage, buy cars, raise a family, et cetera, et cetera. So since I would say the last 20 years, there's a very, very hard reality that I'm not sure most colleagues really understand. And that is, if you're going to be able to do this for a living as an independent, you have got to be expensive relative to what's out there. Okay. Now that means the minute you accept that reality, that means you have to sell the rich people. That's a fact. That's a mm -hmm. harsh fact. And I'm, I'm going to say it, you know, I might take a lot of flack for it, but to be able to do what we do, we have to design products that rich people are gonna buy. And they gotta buy enough of them to keep us going. Now we have competition because that's what LV and Caring, that's what they're targeting too. They're trying to sell the rich people. But there's things going on in the world, including among rich people, even though they're the minority, even though they're the 1% or the 2% or the 3%, you gotta understand that 1% of the world is not a small number of people. There's quite a few of them out there and they're growing. Yes. And what we've found over the years is they're not all the same, not at all. They're not all the same in terms of how rich they are. Some are richer than others by factors of 150 to one. Some are smarter, if you will. They're more in tune, they're more educated, they, they're more cultural than others. Some have had their wealth for a longer time, maybe within their family, what you call the old money. Some are new, nouveau riche. They have the money, but they don't really have much else. They need to learn, Yeah. okay? Some are trying to be rich or trying to look rich, okay? And so as you begin to understand that you're going to have to be a luxury, quote unquote, and I hate the word, hate it, but yeah, that's what we are. I hear it. I'm a luxury market designer. Okay, so as a designer, I got to do my job. What do we, what do, we do to, 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 and where do we fit in? Now, we don't have to sell to all rich people in the world. We don't have to sell to 50% or 60% of them. LV does. And that's their mm -hmm. problem. Because that's a large number of people. So what we thought is, we can go for a minority of these rich people. Let's go for the smart ones. Let's go for the ones that are serious about the real issues going on in the planet. And Let's go for the ones that, um, they're not aspirational. They got right. it. They got it. Yeah. And if they got it and they like what we do, they buy a lot and they stick with us. 
These are people mm -hmm. I can count on. Okay. As, as George Bush said in that Michael Moore movie, the base. All right. I hate saying it, but this is a reality. Okay. In the meantime, <laughs> I'm like Robin Hood. I can keep a whole friggin' town employed with this if yeah. I do my job. So what do I got to do? I got to do all the things that a super rich person would demand. And that's complex. These people are not easy to satisfy. They're not. Anybody's, oh, I have luxury, I sell to rich people. Listen to me. You try selling to rich people. It's not easy. Why? <laughs> first and foremost, they can buy anything. Yeah. So the first question is, what do I need you for? What are you doing for me that I should kick out five grand for one of your jackets? So we got to give them some things in order to earn that purchase. First, like anything else, they can't look like an idiot wearing what, we're, what we do. We got to make them look sharp and we got to make them look also right in a certain way, which coincides with what they do in their lives, either socially or professionally. So our codes for aesthetics have to follow those kinds of guidelines. Now I'm talking about, I'm not talking about pieces we might put on a Paris runway show or special projects. I'm talking about the bread and butter work that we do. Mm -hmm. And when you, when you, to answer your question. And so, you know, we got to make a good suit. We got to make a good jacket. And it's got to be something that a guy can wear to a bank. He may own the bank and a lot of our customers own banks. So we need to make a jacket that's suitable for a guy that owns a bank. So some of the things my honorable colleagues do, uh-uh, no way. We can't go near that stuff. It's ridiculous. We can't touch it. We've got to follow certain codes for these kinds of people and we got to do it flawlessly. So the model is always Ferrari. Build a beautiful, sharp, super performing, gorgeous art product, okay? But it's never something that the bank chairman will sneer at and say, oh, what are you doing? That's not an easy thing to live up to. So we have to have the aesthetic has to be right and it has to follow certain codes and it has to be different than what everybody else is doing. We cannot do what Xenia does. We cannot do what Brioni does. We cannot do what Loro Piana does because these rich people are very powerful and very successful. And the other difficulty that they present to a designer in our game is they don't want to look like everybody else. They're all special. They're all yeah. different. Okay. So we have to build in an enormous amount of exclusivity and differentiation in every single piece we do. Now, nobody sees it really, except the people that wear mm -hmm. and own the pieces. Okay. But when it comes to actual creating, designing, and producing, it's impossible. And that's where we feel so strong because we're over the years refining, developing our capability to do this kind of design work. 
and nobody else, we just know it. Anybody that wants to come in and compete with us, they got 30 years of catch up to do before they can touch this stuff. So you have to offer the exclusivity, you have to offer an aesthetic that's innovative, but it's gotta be correct. And then, well, what do you do with a Ferrari? What do you do with a plate of spaghetti by Marco Pierre White at Harvey's in 1970, 1978? Well, there's a, there's a experience part. So mm -hmm. you get into a Ferrari, sooner or later, you're gonna turn the key and try to drive the thing. You go into one of these four-star Michelin restaurants, they're gonna give you a plate on your table, they're charging you 300 bucks for the plate, and you better try a bite of it. <laughs> $5,000 GBS jacket, uh, okay, looks great. Let's put it on. And that's where the rubber hits the road, that's where our design really kicks in. Mm -hmm. We're designing. I, it, yeah, that's exactly the experience I had the first time I went to your showroom. And, you know, at the time, you know, a lot of people were comparing you and Paul Harden. And the first time I went to your showroom and I put one of your jackets on, it was such a transformative experience. Thank and you. that's where I was like, Paul Harden is nowhere near this in terms of quality, but also in terms of like how it feels on your body. It, it was really like wearing, it was wearing like a mix of, it was like a mix of armor and pajamas at the same time. Yeah. You yeah. Know? Thank you. And, and I, and it Thanks was Eugene. just astounding. That, that's and, a, that's a great course, compliment. And, and that's how it felt. And, you know, just seeing those, Como silk linings you use that are like <laughs> more high quality fabric that's like most people use it, you know, for an outer layer of a jacket or a dress or whatnot. It, it was just, it, it was really, really, it's a really trying on your clothes is a transformative, transformative experience. And I can honestly say because that's how I felt the first time I put on one of your jackets. Thank you so much. I mean, that's, and that honestly, that's the starting point of every GBS design idea. I'm sitting there thinking like, what's the thing gonna feel like when I got it on? So we build from the inside out. And unfortunately, you know, fashion, fashion editors and runway editors, you, you can't, they can't understand it. It's not their fault, but that's just something completely they don't have any contact with. But it's the fundamental part of what we do because you know, a lot of these bank chairmen, a lot of these CEOs, a lot of these venture capitalists, a lot of these people in, in, you know, and a lot of these rock stars, forget the, forget the business people, right? Artists, big artists, uh, you know, some of them, they don't, they're not really visually fashionable people. They're not really into that. And mm -hmm. they have some of them, you know, certainly some, some musical Big stars have their own, but oftentimes they don't dress up. They dress down. They've got their own way of doing things. And the yeah. idea, they're very anti-fashion, a lot of these people. Anti-fashion. They hate it. And so yeah. you, 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 you've got them in one of our dealers and they're looking at things that are five, 10,000 euros a pop. And, uh, 
what we do, what changes it is you put the thing on and suddenly it's like you're in the Ferrari and you step on a pedal and you go around a curve and you say, okay, I get it. You eat one of Marco Pierre White's dishes. Okay, I understand it now. This is worth the money that they're asking because this you don't find anywhere. And this is something that makes me really feel good. And that, yeah. that's the big part of GBS design. And it's, it, it, and it becomes, that's materialism. That's, that's, mm -hmm. it, it goes every single detail. So yeah, the Como silk linings. All right. Our Como silk linings, we pay 30, 40, 50 euros a meter. Most companies are using linings where they pay two to three. We're using yeah. fabric. I mean, when we first started, we went to them and they said, what are you going to make? Beautiful dresses, uh, haute couture. Uh, what are you going to do with our fabric? And I said, well, actually, I'm trying to find something to line some of my jackets with. What? Excuse me? <laughs> Raffaella, vieni qua. Eh? Questo cazzo va, va a usare i nostri tessuti per fare fodere. Ma che matto è? They were insulted. I said, don't worry. Don't worry. I don't mean to lower the price. But I want these people to feel something when they get it on. And with viscose and stuff like that, it's not quite the same. And we're now huge buyers of silk. I mean, we make beautiful shirts and things out of the silks, but we still use them, more than half of them, in linings. But it goes beyond that. Then there's the exterior fabrics themselves. I mean, we're, yeah. we're using so many fabrics from, and we don't have many guys making the fabric. We have about three or four companies. And these are the diehard, best in the world, super master companies that are still making the best fabrics in the world anywhere. Mm -hmm. And they're in Italy. And so we have specialists uh, from the Piacenza people to Colombo to uh, Parisotto, and each one is different. So it, it begins to relate a lot like cooking. And one of the mm -hmm. things I've been doing throughout the pandemic, <laughs> and we've all been sort of hanging out in lockdowns and reading and studying. I've been studying cooks. <laughs> <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. I've been studying uh, Escoffier and, and Michel and, and Pierre, uh, Marco Pierre White and uh, uh, the, the whole Michelin French cooking system. And um, I'm finding mm -hmm. a lot of similarities. Uh, but I equate, oh, absolutely. I equate food with clothing a lot, at least in the way we approach yeah. it. Um, it makes sense. Most people eat junk food. Uh, that's that's what most of the clothes that's being pumped out and then there is the you know three-star michelin meal and you know uh, i know you've alluded to bankers and ceos a lot as your audience but these are not the people that i'm meeting who wear your stuff i'm meeting no. musicians yeah. and you know the good thing is like they're not necessarily rich but they understand the value of quality and they buy rarely but they buy right and, and they want that and they want that differentiate differential in how they dress uh because it's so unique and like these are the people i'm meeting we're well, like believe me we we know we have a lot of those customers and I don't mean to belittle that part of our clientele. In fact, you know, the real dream is first, we're simply trying to keep 
this metier alive. We're in survival mode right now. Okay. So that's pushing us up into the carriage trade. All right. Mm-hmm. What it's, what it's based upon is it's based upon technical human capacity. And the issue right now is, well, yeah, cause I get a lot of people, why is it so expensive? So expensive because there's only a few people that know how to do it. And until we yeah. expand the knowledge base of human beings that have the skill sets again, it's going to be that way. So one of the other things that I've been trying to do, and I'm still trying to do, and I'm going to do it to the day I die, is I'm still trying to train and grow new generations of designers, but designers who are tailors, designers who have, they, they can make the stuff, who have a visceral knowledge of how great clothing can be made. And I think somewhere down the line, we'll get some critical mass where we'll begin to see more and more of this kind of level available. It's somewhat like organic cooking in the, you know, when those people, Chez Panisse out in the West Coast back in the, yeah. uh, back in the 60s, you know, it, it, it can spread once more and more chefs know how to do this and, or they get inspired and at least try to do it on their own. And I think that's part of our role is to teach and inspire uh, more people to do it. And then it'll become more available. As it becomes the yeah. skill sets more available, then the price comes down because it can get more localized. Um, and in the meantime, our big argument is uh, even if you're not a millionaire, it still is a smart purchase because what we give you is we give you what, what we call real value. So it's old fashioned, you know, in the, back in the a century ago, for example, most European and even the United States societies, you would spend a week's wages to get a suit made. Yeah, this is what I keep telling people. This is what I keep harping on. You know, for someone who grew up in, I grew up in the Soviet Union, and I clearly remember the old world habits of dress. And that's exactly like you, a coat costs you a week's wage, sometimes two weeks wages, sometimes three weeks wage. Maybe, you know what? Maybe even a month. Sure. But then you kept that coat for 10 years. And yeah, it maybe more. It kept maybe more. It kept you warm. I don't know if I told you, Dries Vadnoten's father, uh, grandfather, and I don't know if we have to go to such an extreme today, but Dries Vadnoten's father was a particular type of a tailor uh, to whom people brought their suits, you know, working class people, uh, petite bourgeoisie, they brought their suits when they were worn out on the outside. He took them apart. He turned them inside out and gave them a brand new suit. Yeah. Now, okay, we're probably not going to return to that. Fine. But there was something so human about it. And it came from a necessity, but there was something really beautiful about it. And I know exactly what it is. People used to care about their clothes. And it wasn't about consuming. No. It was about li- living. And the first word that comes to mind when I look at your clothes, Jeffrey, is the first adjective is human. 
these are very human clothes. Yeah, that's that's I, I think that's right. I think that's the way I feel, too. And, and a lot of what we do, you know, it's it's not rocket science. A lot of what we do is old world stuff. We're, I mean, we have a growing department within our company, if you can believe it, that we call repair and alteration services. We have we have our stores are sending us pieces from all over the world to be fixed, repaired, or altered because they don't have the tailors near them that can do it. And we're charging, you know, we're charging workroom rates that are, they're pretty high. I mean, I, I don't want to say what the, some of the pricing is, but, but it's not scaring them off. And there's something to be said. And honestly, in the old days, those suits you spend a week, they were expected to last almost a lifetime. And sometimes they would get passed down to your kids. And tailors making those suits carried that responsibility as well. And we've lost that whole connection. And that's been something that for 40 plus years, Absolutely. I've been trying to rebuild. So at least when yeah. it comes to GBS, if you're a client of mine, we take on, we take on a social responsibility as far as the pieces that we make for you, we're going to take care of your wardrobe. We're going to back those pieces up because that's something I think is totally missing. And uh, I think most people don't really know about it because everybody's complaining about it and how it's missing. But there is one company in the world that's that's aggressively growing. that's practicing this. You, you want to see a sustainable operation? Here it is. You want to see you know, no slavery and, and how to do it. it. Here it is. It's, it's operating. So we're also in this sort of growth mode where we're racing to, to continue to build what we have. Cause we've seen the demand is there. Um, yeah, I'm very happy about it because there are so many discouraging signs right now of, you know, if you like by and large people are less and less touched to their clothes and this whole fucking silicon valley model of rent don't own it's a whole new kind of hell <laughs> whose <laughs> biggest most pernicious thing is that they're conditioning people to not care about their possessions and i think this is a very grave sin that we're gonna pay for down the line and what's worse, they're hiding behind the sustainability narrative where they're saying, oh, look, you don't have to buy and then throw it out. You can just rent it. Yeah, we'll, we'll throw it out for you. You know, that's the part they're not saying. I I'm totally but with you. But this whole idea of renting, and I wrote about it in Business of Fashion. I don't know if you remember that piece. You know, I, I wrote a piece called Buy, Don't Rent. Yeah. And the narrative they spin, we're fighting against fast fashion and they make it look like there is only fast fashion in the world. And it's just such bullshit. And I was so angry at that. And that's why, you know, that piece was born out of it. We need to go back to caring about material things uh, as a lifelong leftist. There, I said it. Okay. <laughs> We need to fucking care about things we own and they'll take care of us. But also you cannot care about 
And now we're getting into my favorite. Now we're getting into Robert Herzig and the Zen of the Out of Motorcycle Maintenance oh, no, Territory. Great, great. Go for it. Yeah. yeah. If you, if a thing is shoddily made, if it's cheaply made, if it's cheap quality, you're in, it's the idea of not caring is already built into that garment. And you as a consumer, and you don't need to be an expert in clothes making, you as a consumer will feel that, you know what, I shouldn't care about this. That's right. And this is why we end up with thousands of tons of waste That's right. every year, That's in right. and out. That's and right. we've done so much, you know, the Capitalist Society has done so much to induce that from the ideas that... God forbid you wear the same thing twice during the week. That's right. You know, t to this rental market. And it's just, to me, it's getting worse and worse. And this is why I've been so adamant about championing designers like you, is that you go completely the opposite way. Well, we've been fortunate to be able to get away with it. Um, you know, it's like uh, I... I got to the point I got so frustrated with the sustainability issue because we were one of the very first in the industry for sure to even bring it up and to start working on it and then it got hijacked you know and, and I got so frustrated that I named collection a couple of years ago I am not sustainable because I got so fed up with it and my view is the same uh it, it, I think you know I'm I'm in an age where I don't know I might have 10 more years left to work I don't know you know, you never, you can never tell. I've got both parents to see. So I'm dealing with mortality, similar to what Rick was talking about when he lost his dad and in his yeah. podcast with you. I, I get that. Um, I don't know. My, my view is, uh, it's all, it's just practice. So I'm, we're going to do it. We're not going to talk about it. We're not going to hype it. We're not going to do press. We're just going to do it and see where it takes us. And that, uh, that includes, pretty much everything we're, we're doing. Um, we, we, we just take care of your customers, keep working on that clothing and how it performs and how it works for them. Um, keep working. I mean, we're doing things in this new super workrooms facility for the sustainability. That's mind blowing, but we're not talking about it much because we know that we're in the middle of this industrial region and all the people working for Chanel and LV and caring are all working around here. So we'd rather keep it quiet and just keep doing what we do. And, uh, I think what's really important for us size wise is we see a large market for us to build, to grow and to take care of. It's not the whole market. And we see the established big luxury companies uh, needing because they're publicly traded. And, you know, look at the last couple of days. What did we see? We saw, I don't know, Off-White got bought by LV 60%. Uh, Xenia selling 35% uh, to do an SPC. SPCA, whatever the hell that is. Do you, do you, yeah, want, do you yeah. get that concept? I don't even get oh, the yeah. concept. I yeah, mean, it's, a, spec, it's yeah. a shell company to buy and sell another company on the, on the public stock exchange. Jesus Christ, why yeah. are they doing that? Because 
<laughs> Gildo, Gildo came out in the, to the press and said they need to shore up after COVID. They need to prevent themselves from getting taken over. And the luxury market, according to him, is getting tougher and tougher. And I looked at that and I said, why is it getting, you just put Tom Brown and he uses all these other things. You know, it's because I think the problem with these publicly traded, they've got to keep growing. Like you said before, and the problem is if yeah. you're LV at 40 billion, you got to be at 50 billion in 10 years. How are you going to do that? So they keep having to expand the market for luxury, wider and wider base that prevents them from being able to do what we're doing in a huge way. And it leaves a part of that market open to us. And so we, we feel we've got growth potential. I mean, you know, I mean, from one point something million to 10 million. Well, that's a lot. <laughs> and we can, yeah. we can support a lot of things. And we're also in a race as well to do so because we also have supply chain issues that we're seeing that, you know, we've got to keep these textile makers alive as well. And they're under great stress and, and pressure, especially after COVID. We've got to keep the button makers. We've got to keep all these things. These are things that we can't do. We can't make fabric. I don't want to even think about it. Um, but if I've got one or two guys that can make the best fabric in the world and the companies that used to be buying from them, I won't make any names, have now switched to do cheaper stuff to reach a wider luxury market. Yeah. That I influence. Love, Go ahead. I, I love that you've always championed publicly your fabric suppliers, whereas usually it's such a trade secret that's kept so close to the chest by all these designers and you've you've been doing this since forever and yeah. I, I remember when you know Dries von Noten did a collection where he put logos of his suppliers outside and I and I was like oh this is great you know but like Jeffrey's been doing this forever where it's absolutely explicit and I love that for you you are more interested in keeping those businesses alive than you know giving away these trade secrets and i and i feel like part of it is that you're confident in what you make where you're almost inviting like well go ahead and try to make what i make like you're welcome to try i think that's that's right not only that first of all those those names that we 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 talk about first of all the model is ferrari so ferrari makes one of the most advanced motor cars in the world but they also give credit to their key suppliers and they have a thing or key Ferrari suppliers. They don't make the brakes. So they, they give credit to Brembo. They don't make spark plugs, champion. They don't make the body, Pininfarina. And this is for decades they've done this. So anybody that follows Ferrari knows that, you know, Pininfarina makes the body and Brembo does the brakes. But beyond that, there's also a relationship that has built up over decades that we're also doing with our guys. And that is when you stay, and that's the other part that's rare. There's a lot of switching beds when it comes to suppliers because, you know, you can, 
you can switch from one supplier, fabric supplier, and the other, and you can play off one or the other, and you can use it to cut your price, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I want this cotton for three bucks a meter. If you don't give it to me, I'll go get it made by this guy. So that that lack of 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 loyalty, if you will, all right, gives you maybe the lower price this season for that fabric, but it burns the trust, and it burns the ability to really work collaboratively, um, especially artistically, with the suppliers. And so, like Ferrari, we felt we've got to pick the best guys in the game, do the best we can to get to the point where they would even consider working with us. And that's a big deal too. You know, when we talk about Fratelli Piacenza, this is the oldest running woolen mill still in operation in the world today, seven generations, family controlled. These guys, anybody that knows the real fabric game, these guys are the top of the top. Independent, this is not Oro Piana, bought by LVMH. These guys, the family still owns the whole kit and caboodle. Plus they've got their own natural park all around the plant in the hills of Biella in the, in the, in the pre-Alps. Um, we went to them in 2004. I was basically a nobody, you know, Paris collections, but yeah, these guys didn't care about Paris collections. And over the years, we continue to build. We weren't big customers, but they began to see, well, this guy's buying from us all the time. <laughs> Finally, I got this call <laughs> one day, like I got this call from this big shot at Piacenza and at a certain point, he just said, like, what the hell are you doing with all the fabric you're buying from us? <laughs> now, that, that I've got to explain. That was a scary question, Eugene, because we don't, we don't use Piacenza fabric generally the way they send it to us. We change it. We have the most advanced hand treatment and fabric treatment operation on the planet. And we do that because I've got to give exclusivity to my customers. They can't have the same fabric that Brioni or Keton or any one of another big brands of luxury might have that same fabric from Piacenza that I bought from them as well. If they buy something from me, it's got to be completely different. So back then when that phone call happened, I panicked because I don't know if they're going to like what I've been doing to their fabrics because I've been doing all sorts of things to mess them up, <laughs> distressing yeah. them, turning them dark, right? Doing all sorts of things that look like mistakes. But for me and for my clients, and for our aesthetic, and also for feel, we were making them for us, they were better once we were done working with them. And so I started telling them, I said, well, we're, we're modifying them. <laughs> and then there was this period of three or four years where we got to know each other. And at one point, the same guy that I talked to physically saw a couple of pieces that we had done in a Paris collection and thank God, he loved it. He said, that is great. That's amazing. And the reason he liked it 
is because it was also good for them because they weren't going to get in trouble with Brioni or Keaton or Armani. Right. And so a lot of what's going on with that story and the reason we give credit is because there's collaboration going on. Uh, Parisato, I mean, Parisato, we go way beyond even that level of collaboration with Piacenza. Parisato is the best research fabric maker on the planet. What's that mean? That means we make things with him from scratch. This yarn, that yarn, this one, this structure, this weave. Hey, could you run a stripe through that instead? And we sit there and we design totally different fabrics from structure to composition to yarn to color from zero. And Luigi is, I mean, I worked, I've worked with many, many suppliers now in my career, you know, and oftentimes they don't want to do anything special for you. You know, here's, mm-hmm. here's what we do, take it or leave it, you know, plus the minimum 10,000 meters. All right, Luigi's different, Luigi. I go to him and say, look, next collection, we're going to be doing something, uh, I don't know, we're going to be doing Pizza Hut. <laughs> you know, I need to do some fabrics that look like Pizza Hut workers or something. Okay. And then I'm thinking I need one idea that he comes up with. So he makes a bunch of, you know, takes some few weeks and we calls me back and says, uh, can you come up uh, to my place? Because uh, I've been working on some stuff for you and I've got some things for you to look at. I said, okay. I go up there and this is, this is a thing that's repeated for years now. And I'm just trying to get one good new fabric I get up there and the guy shows me 20. And out of the 20, 15 of them are fucking good. I mean, they're really good, Eugene. I mean, they're like, mm-hmm. oh, damn, I gotta buy them all. <laughs> <laughs> well, what does that mean? That means that, you know, this guy is an artist in his own right. Yeah. He's a real innovative, creative guy. He takes initiative. And let me tell you, he is unique in the whole industry because most of the guys of his generation, his age in the industry are out of the game in Italy. And so I see a guy like that and I see, man, this guy's the last standing bastion of designing fabric in all of Italy. I'm going to put his name on this thing. This guy's a hero. And I don't have any issue because my name and his name that's good. My name mm-hmm. and Piacenza name, nothing wrong with that. I have no issue. What do we got to hide yeah. and why? Why not? It, it enhances our image, I think, the fact that we're using these guys. And we've gone all the way to fabrics like the Vicuña. We've been using Vicuña from Piacenza in the last year and a half. This is fabric that costs 2,000 euro a meter. Ah. We get done, now let me, if, let me get a big success and I'll, I'll, I'll see if I can build you one. But this is, these are coats, these are top coats that retail at 60 to 70,000 euro. Oh my God. We've sold them and the stores have sold. Wow. Every single one we built, okay? And that piece has an experience in it that is even more mind-blowing 
just cutting the stuff and sewing it. It's incredible. It's incredible. So there's all these different levels and dimensions once you get into the tactile and the practical and what, again, what we would define philosophically as the materialistic side of things that I think 99.99% of industry, consumer, media have completely ignored and blown out the window. Um, what's important for us is let's just keep it going. Let's keep practicing it and, you know, guard it, protect it. And that's the biggest challenge I have all the time is don't, mm -hmm. don't drop the standard. Don't let yeah. it go. Well, I was also happy to see over the years of following your work closely that you have some young guys coming up and some of them came from other countries and from the States even. And some of like style side guys, people have come and worked with you. And, and that gives me hope that there is however small slice, but there are people in a new generation that are interested in making no doubt. Like no doubt, Eugene. And that's where, you know, in the beginning of this whole thing, I wanted to thank SC has played a, a very important role. You know, it, it, we have the, the we have a guy who, who saw us in SC and then wrote to us. He's he's head of our design department today. Nick Gianelli from New York. Wow. Um, he's still here. And he's honestly, I would put him up against almost all the guys on the circuit. He's really, really good. And he can make a pattern like nobody else. I mean, I, I make patterns, but I can't make a pattern like Nick. Nick is like, um, we're building team here. So, you know, it's not like uh, we're not trying to be like um, things. For example, we don't want to repeat the Carpe Diem story in a lot of ways. We don't want to repeat a lot of it where young guys come spend a year or two with an internship, go off and start their own brand. I, it's something that I'm not interested in because I think it's counterproductive. You don't really get the mastery of the art in a couple of years. Impossible. Mm -hmm. You need five to 10. And at five to 10, then maybe you can think about actually going off and doing your own line or something like that as I want to teach it. It just... There's yeah. just no shortcuts. Um, we had all the time we're getting, you know, requests to do internships and things from now. You know, it's it's always a kick because now we get them from all these top places like Bunka and Antwerp and and uh, mm -hmm. the Flanders and the, the CSMs and all that stuff. You know, uh, that's great. Um, it's challenging, though, because a lot of a lot of those portfolios and CVs are there's way over on the idealism side and really lacking on the materialism side. And so a lot of our skill schooling is you're going to come work at GBS. you got to deal with the fact that you're going to be spending at least two years learning your chops on cutting table, sewing machine, hand sewing board. You're going to have to learn how to, you're going to have to learn how to make clothes and make them well. Well, go yeah, well, which goes back to me saying, you know, like everybody wants to be an abstract artist now. Like no one wants to actually right, right. learn and how. Well, you need to, the craft is indispensable to any form of art. 
we we think so, but Eugene, you and I are maybe getting old. You know, I mean, that's that's a tough <laughs> argument to convince a lot of younger folks right now. Um, my view, my experience, but there are some out there, and I think I think it's also very important to note that um, you know, there's cycles. There's a lot of cycles. Yeah. And we had a, an extraordinary team building uh, up until COVID. Uh, some of the guys you met in Paris. And mm-hmm. unfortunately, uh, except for Nick, uh, we lost them right after the pandemic in the first month and a half, two months. Uh, they all went nuts in lockdown. Um, and I have to rebuild that team. And part of the other thing that was happening as we were talking about workspace before, I still can't rebuild that team until I can get enough working space to be able to grow the company to 40 or 50 people. So I'm actually scrambling right now to expand uh, facilities and workspace here in Kavartsare. It's a strange story. I, I started, first you study design. And then once you, once you really study design, you realize something very quick. And this is when I was like 20 years old. Is if you're really going to control your design, really going to design something different, you've got to know production. Because you can't yeah. design what you cannot make. Exactly. And the knowledge, you certainly can't be telling a factory, no, you don't do it this way, you do it this way. If you don't have the respect of the factory and the ability to convince them that you know what you're talking about. So mm-hmm. I studied production, I studied making. And then once you study production, then you realize, oh God, you gotta study some business because you can't make what you can't pay for. And then once you study business, you realize, oh damn, you gotta study some law because you can't win the game if you don't know what the rules are. And that was my first half of my career. Then I moved to Italy. And then I had two more hard lessons to learn. One was taxes, because in Italy versus the US, the tax rates are totally astronomically higher. So you, everything you do, you have to think about how it affects your tax liabilities and exposure. Whole different way of managing a company. And then you had to learn about, once I got to the point where, you know, in the first 10 years we were trying to subcontract like everybody else, and I got to the point where, no, we're not going to be able to do Ferrari unless we do what Ferrari did. Ferrari did everything in-house. You're going to have to hire people and build the staff and all that kind of stuff. Once I started to do that, then I realized, oh, that's tough, too, because labor laws here are very different than labor laws back home. They're strict. They protect. People are protected here, really protected. Yeah. And so for the guy that's hiring them, it's much, much tougher and much, much scarier. It's not a casual decision to hire mm-hmm. somebody in Europe, or particularly in Italy. You're like getting married to this person. And so yeah. once we learned how to do that, we got to a certain size. And now my new thing, and I quote, I quote Jerry Wang, the, the guy that uh, built uh, NVIDIA. At one point, I, I saw him do a talk and he said like, you know, being an entrepreneur means learning something new all the time, endless. Mm -hmm. And so the something new I'm learning right now is if you're gonna get to a certain size of employees as a company, 
you've got to know about the space. You've got to know about all the rules, all the norms, all the codes. And so we're strangely becoming a bit of a real estate company right now because we have to get space. So I've got to rebuild this young team because they're critical. They're particularly yeah. critical in the next year when I think the real, the real recovery from COVID is going to begin to happen. And I know we were exchanging emails, but I'm not sure I'm going to be in Paris in January. I'm not sure we okay. got a handle on this thing, but mm. I think, I think 2022 will do it. Um, and we have to be ready for Paris. And that's a different level of prototype development and creation, I think. So, I'm scrambling to get more buildings to be able to rebuild um, creative design team and get the school going again. And the school is really, yeah. a lot of the school is Bauhaus. It's, it's build, mm -hmm. it's build and create. Yeah. Make the furniture, then design. Yeah. And the, the Bauhaus right. guys had to spend two years producing furniture before they could go off and start doing Marcel Brewer chairs and things like that. And I think it showed in the results at the end. Yeah. Well, I feel like one of the reasons why this sort of school of apprenticeship is kind of dying uh, is because the people who are successful, they're med mediocre. And when you see, when the young people see mediocrity having this unparalleled success, the attitude is, well, if they can do it, why can't I? Yeah. And if they can do it, if they can do it doing this, why can't I make the right t-shirt with the right logo on it and spin the right narrative around it, uh, et cetera, et cetera. I think and, you're and that's right what's on. lost because it's, right it's not because it's not the Alexander McQueens of the world who are the golden standard anymore, right? Mm -hmm. It's it's the Virgil of no, 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 no. Blow. You're you're yeah. right on it, and I've got I've got a I, I've got my own history of students. I call them students who went that route. You know, they lasted with me with us about a month and a half or even a year too much i i think that's a real fact and i think it's growing but but i think the world's a very big place i think there's there's eight billion people on the planet and i think uh i think there's a place for a few people that are they'll go the other way and those, those people, and I'm talking about, you know, young generation, they're going to be the greats. And so my school yeah. is an advanced school. You know, it's, uh, it's super elitist. It's super tough. And maybe you don't last and you got to last five, five or 10 years. But by the time you're done working in this organization, you're going to be so fucking good. Nobody's going to stop you. And we're going to have our battle is going to be we don't want you to go working for somebody else. We want you staying within the organization and building it even further. So I think the other thing that's happened 
and this is just as much all of our faults, is that there's too much exploitation of young folks in the creative industries, certainly in fashion design. There's too many posts where, and I, you know, I, I got plenty of colleagues, I heard the stories. These guys working 50 hours a week and not getting paid and all this kind of stuff forever and ever. I mean, one huge name built eight years of collections on interns. Yeah. I mean, you know, literally, you come in for six months, you're working there, then you're gone. Another group comes in six months. Incredible creativity, but relatively unsustainable in terms. So our view has never been our school is you're, you're coming to work. We hire you. We give you a full work contract. You're protected by all the Italian government uh, privileges for employees. You have a chance to build a financial career where you could buy your own house. Well, that's 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 a fundamental. And then I'm hoping we can build the company a little bit beyond that scale where we can offer even more types of perks. Um, we have to get there. But that's I think that's the other side to it is that um, a lot of people are expecting a young kid to throw in a lot of time and a lot of work and personal time. All right. Uh, there's sacrifices that have to be made, uh, oftentimes with a personal life. Um, and at the same time, there's very, very little financial security or remunerative value during and beyond that period. So it's only logical. It's only logical that a bright young kid might look around and say, the hell, why should I do this? Yeah. Do t-shirts. Yeah. Let's do t-shirts. So I think it's up to, I think it's up to, and, and I think it falls on us because we're the only company that's following this route. We've also got to create packages and, and ways to uh, provide a decent return on investment for a young superstar that really wants to put in the time and the work to really achieve uh, great mastery. I think they're out there. I, I don't oh, think no it's doubt. over. No doubt. Oh, I don't no think doubt. it's over. No, I mean, yet. I've seen them. Yeah, I've seen them at Parsons. It's and it's the and it's the and it's the industry that ruins them, especially in New York, because they do a great collection. At Parsons. It's their sophomore year or junior year. Then, then they get uh, offered to go to an internship at Ralph Lauren. That's right. And that's a right. lot of them are not going to say no to that. And what that's are they right. going to do? What are they going to end up doing at R Ralph Lauren? You know, designing polo shirts. That's right. And just like, well, we'll, we'll place the polo player here or we'll place them there or we'll do this color. You know, it's not real work. And then they... I feel like almost like their creativity dies along with them. And we complain about how fashion industry is so boring in New York, but you know, it's not for the a dearth of talent. Eugene, it's the way the industry that's is my life. Up. That's what happened to me in 1978 yeah. and 1979. That's when I said, the more I looked at New York, the less I liked it. That was the story of my career at that time. I was winning Big design prizes, design school prizes, national ones and international ones. So I was getting called down once I won these prizes. And the prizes were only for drawn pictures. I didn't have to make clothes at that time. And then, you know, the prize, like these LVMH prizes, the prize was, oh, you get to 
you get to have the internship with these guys and you get to go work for these guys. And it was like, here's the portfolio. And oh, this is great. This is perfect. I love it. Fantastic. You're a genius. That's great. All we got to do is uh, move the lapel in a little bit here, taper the knee a little bit there, a little bit less waist suppression here, change that fabric to something a little bit more like this. And it, it took like 30 seconds to realize by the time they're done with it, they had no interest in what you were doing. Absolutely none. Zero. And I tracked a lot of my colleagues, you know, I, I made friends with a lot of, you know, my generation, other guys that were winning the prizes, you know, and they, I was one of the only guys that came from Boston. In fact, I was the only one. Most of the other ones at that level were coming out of FIT, Parsons and uh, uh, Pratt and RISD. And so we would, you know, we would keep contacts and say, you know, call each other and talk and how you guys doing and what's, what are you up to? And, you know, that's what it was. That hasn't changed in 50 years. And it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's intrinsic in a system. And I think it's, it's slowly wearing itself through to the point where what we see today is a system that can't produce very much. Um, and so I felt like even back then at 20 years old, I felt I got to get away from this. Get away. And so I went yeah. back home, the attic of my parents house and I my mom had an old singer sewing machine and I just I huddled away and you know it was like a refuge and I just said I try to do whatever I can by myself and here I am today it's the same it's the same thing I'm hiding out in Cavartere doing everything by ourselves <laughs> <laughs> that's right cool well Jeffrey uh on that note I you know I think we've put in a fantastic session here been pretty exciting. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, thank you so much for for being on the podcast, and I really hope. I think there's some valuable valuable lessons. I hope people get out of that one. Well, I really appreciate the time and the chance to be able to get on get on the show, and uh, it's it's also been very enjoyable. It's been fun talking with you once again. One of these days, we'll see each other in person, physically. Yes, maybe sooner rather than later. Maybe sooner. Great. <laughs> okay. Thank you, Jeffrey. Take care. Bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. You've been listening to the Styles I Guys podcast, hosted by Eugene Rapkin, produced by Patrick Leduc, intro and outro music by Wesley Isolt of Cold Cave. Please support us on Patreon at www patreon.com forward slash stalls i guess thank you for listening